starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Thank you. You may be seated. The fact that we have bodies is the oldest joke there is, writes C.S. Lewis, who wrote this book called The Four Loves. He says there in uh, one section of that book that our bodies are very clumsy things, even though things like death and medicine and stick drawings force us to take it with total seriousness at times, he writes. He suggests that we think of the body in the way that we would think of a donkey. He says this, No one in his senses can either revere or hate a donkey. It is a useful, sturdy, lazy, obstinate, patient, lovable, and infuriating beast, deserving now the stick and now a carrot, both pathetically and absurdly beautiful. So the body. But it's more than this, Lewis writes in another one of his writings. He says, but for our body, one whole realm of God's glory, all that we receive through the senses, would go unpraised. For the beasts cannot appreciate it. And the angels are, I suppose, pure intelligences. They understand colors and tastes better than our greatest scientists. But have they retinas or palates? I fancy the beauties of nature are a secret that God has shared with us alone. Now, thanks to the influence of ancient Greek philosophy on our modern culture, we tend not to think about our bodies in any of the ways that I just read, as C.S. Lewis thought about his own body, which is simply a utilitarian vessel through which we might glorify God and simply be, well, human. We tend either to take our bodies too seriously, doing all that we can to stay in shape and stay alive and really making idols out of them, or the opposite extreme, we don't take them seriously enough. We, we let them go. We, we abuse them in the pursuit of entertainment or food or sex, and we make idols with them. So we make idols 
for them, or we make idols out of them, or we make idols with them. So here's, here's my question. Is it possible for us to arrive at a middle ground, to neither glory in our bodies nor ignore our bodies? Now, Paul would say, there is. And we can see this here in these few verses that I just read to you in his own little mini-theology of the body. If you're taking notes, I'll give you a title. This is a theology of the human body. I put human in parenthesis because we're not talking about the church. We're talking about the individual human body. For context, Paul's brothers and sisters in Corinth had uh, been influenced by their culture, as I just said. And you could say that these Corinthians had sort of taken on a sort of a, a Christian dualism. They believed that uh, salvation was through Jesus alone, and that when Jesus saved a person, he saved their soul, the essential part of us. And, and when we're saved, that soul will one day be freed of the body. And so today, our bodies that we live in mean very little and so, like the old saying goes, we may as well eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul says in response, no. Christ came to redeem our whole being, our whole body and soul for himself. So, friends, through the pen of Paul, Paul, God wants us to think about our bodies biblically. We feed, friends, our, our broken spiritual condition when we do not. Making idols out of or with our bodies. Overindulging in things that are meant to point to God's goodness, like food, like drink, like sex. So much of our sorrow comes when we fail to live in the good of that middle ground. And here's Paul's secret. There is a middle ground. And that middle ground says that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can give meaning to this pathetically, absurdly beautiful thing that we call the human body. So in an attempt to quash the uh, vain philosophy of the human body that, guess what, also influences us here today, I'd like to give us three reasons why the Christian's body matters to God. Three Christian, three Christians, three reasons why if you're a Christian, your body matters to God. I'm going to list these each, and we'll work through each of them individually. Number one, we were created for Christ. Number two, we were joined to Christ. And number three, we were bought by Christ. Created, joined, and bought. Number one, the Christian's body matters to God because God created it for Christ. Now again, let's, let's keep in mind Paul's flow of thought in this larger section. Paul has been responding to reports that have come out of Corinth about certain behaviors that certain members of the church in Corinth are engaged in. And one of the most prominent behavior problems in the church in Corinth is sexual promiscuity, what Paul calls Sexual immorality, or the, the Greek word is porneo, which is where we get the word pornography from. We see this in a number of catchphrases that Paul quotes here, which were evidently mantras that this church lived by. The first of which is in verse 12. People were going around saying, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. 
You see, what happened was some members in the church were living their lives with this sort of idea, you know, gosh, isn't this freedom we have in Christ just wonderful? I've never, since I've been saved, I've never been freer now that my sins are forgiven. So, they concluded, my actions don't really matter because at the end of the day, grace abounds. This is a hyper-grace type of theology. This is an abuse of grace. This is the trampling of the Son of God underfoot. But this was the mentality amongst the Corinthians. One poet captures their attitude perfectly. Free from the law, oh happy condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. So in response to this catchphrase, Paul doesn't deny what they're saying. And he's going to talk a lot about Christian freedom in the coming chapters. But he does say, yes, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are beneficial for me. You see what he's doing? Paul doesn't deny that in Christ the Christian is free. Free from the bondage of the law that charges us with guilt whenever we break it. Paul is the biggest proponent of the freedom that Christ has purchased for the Christian. But he does say, though I am free to live as I see fit, with the wisdom that God has given to me by his word and by his spirit, not everything I do may be beneficial to my own soul to my own well-being. Gordon Fee, the commentator, insightfully says, truly Christian conduct is not predicated on whether I have the right to do something, in other words, whether it is to my own benefit or not, but whether my conduct is good, meaning ultimately helpful to those around me. Now we're going to later on get to a lot more about how our freedom affects the others around us, especially those in the church. But for now, Paul's point has to do with the individual. And he's saying, engaging in whatever behavior I want, whenever I want, is not freedom. It's bondage. It's slavery. So often, what starts off as freedom in our minds ultimately becomes enslavement because in our flesh, friends, it's really hard to discern the fine line between good, godly enjoyment and sinful overindulgence. That's why every one of us in this room are prone to doing over something. We're prone to overeating. We're prone to overdrinking. We're prone to overtalking. We're prone to overgazing. We're prone to oversleeping. We can't just enjoy something for what it is and move on. We want some and then some more. Why? Because our sinful flesh is never satisfied. We always want more than what God has provided for us. All the trees in the garden are never enough for us. We always want the one that he says no to. Paul says the opposite. I will not be controlled by anything. Paul knows where this sort of so-called freedom leads. He knows it ends in spiritual weakness and apathy, and for some, it will mean death. Why? Because what I do with my body, dear ones, has a direct effect 
on my spiritual condition. You hear that? I want to say that again. If you get something today, get this. What I do with my body has a direct effect on my spiritual condition. This is what Paul's getting at in this section. And he's going to illustrate this by using something as base and simple and one of the most basic bodily functions that we have as humans, and that's eating as an example. Look at verse 13. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy destroy both one and the other. Now, you can see in your Bibles there's some quotation marks there. Scholars think this is another one of the Corinthian slogans. And there's a debate out there as to where those quotations actually end. If you have an ESV Bible, which is what I read from, the quotation ends after stomach for food. But again, in the original, there's no punctuation. In my reading of this, I think that that saying is extended to that whole uh, sentence. God will destroy both one and the other because that better fits in line with their cultural conditioning. You see, the Corinthian argument went like this. Food exists to satisfy the stomach. And the stomach exists to receive and to process the food we eat. But since the body is just a temporary construct, a temporary house for the soul that God will one day destroy, neither the food that we eat or the body that we put it in matters much at all. So I can use my body however I want and do whatever I want, whatever feels good. I can eat what I want, I can drink what I want, I can have sex with whomever I want because the real stuff of life is not this life. It's in the life to come. My heart will go on like Celine Dion. But, says Paul, this mindset is rooted in some horribly bad theology. And it's connected to a fundamental misunderstanding about God's intentions for the Christian's body. Look at verse 13b and 14. The body is not meant, this is Paul's response, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What's Paul saying? He's saying that when God redeems a man or a woman or a boy or a girl... He doesn't do so in order to bring them out of one sphere, which is the world, and into the sphere of this sort of free-spirited neutrality. Rather, he redeems the whole being, soul and body, into the sphere of God's purposes in Christ. Friends, in other words, redemption is God's claim on both the spiritual and and the physical parts of us. Why? Because discipleship with Jesus is meant to involve both of those parts of us, our spirit and our body, our spiritual faculties and our physical faculties. In the words of one scholar, the body enables discipleship to count. Friends, this is why In Paul's mind, it would be unthinkable to neglect our bodies. Paul says, I keep my body under subjection. I beat it into subjection so that on the last day, I will not be disqualified. I keep under my body, the old King James says. 
God gave us the bodies that we have, friends. Not so that we can look good in the mirror, not so that we can attract a mate, but to enable us, as much as is in us, to be effective followers of Jesus. Listen, food and candy and, and, and drink and alcohol and entertainment and sex can be God's good gifts to us. Paul will tell Timothy later, God has given us richly everything to enjoy. But we can misuse those things. And if we misuse those things in a way that dishonors our body and makes discipleship difficult, we dishonor the Lord. We dishonor the Lord. In my former denomination, where I was a pastor, uh, you could be removed uh, as a pastor if it was found out that you drank alcohol. It was written right into their bylaws. And I was a young man when I went into that denomination. I was 27 years old, 26 years old, somewhere in there. And so I thought, all right, you know, it's good. That's what I'm going to do. And then I started hanging out with some of these other pastors. And I noticed that every time we would get together and have a meal, these guys would just eat plate after plate after plate of food. And it became a joke between me and Michelle that if we're going to go to a, 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 I won't tell you what it was, but go to a, one of the meetings, that if a guy showed up at the front that was thin, we would think something's wrong with the guy. You have to be a big guy in order to be a pastor in this denomination. And if you would press someone and ask, what's, what's the difference? What's the disconnect there? They would say, well, that's just, this is just a cultural thing. This is the South, buddy. You have fried foods at every meal. You have dessert with every meal. Yes, friends, but what if... What if our cultural habits are obstacles to our spiritual ones? These bodies that we have, with all their limitations and all their flaws, are for the Lord. The breath in your lungs and the beating of your heart and the use of your brain makes discipleship possible. Now, can we enjoy food to the glory of God? Absolutely. And I really look forward to doing that with you in just a little while. We are going to enjoy this to the glory of God. But friends, when we fall into a pattern of overindulgence, or in the case of the Corinthians, sexual immorality, we are withholding our bodies from the Lord as a vessel of his glory. Our bodies are stewardships, guys. These are on loan from the Lord. If you've ever been asked to babysit or take care of someone's dog, don't you pay extra special attention to that life because that life is in your hands and if something happens to that life, it's on you. We have to think of our bodies that way. This is on loan. This is a stewardship. It's been entrusted to us by the owner. That's the body. And God has given these things to us, and he's created us and recreated us in Christ so that these limited few years that we have on this globe will count for his praise. So the Christian's body matters to God because God created it for himself. Number two, the Christian's body matters to God because God has joined it to Christ. 
Now, there is extensive scholarly debate over verses 15 and 17. The question is, is Paul referring to a specific situation in Corinth, namely that there were some members of the church in Corinth that were visiting prostitutes, or is Paul illustrating what happens spiritually when a Christian commits sexual immorality? Now, unlike the issue of the family adulterous affair that we saw in chapter 5 and the issue of one brother taking another brother to court in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 6, you'll notice here that Paul does not call out an individual and criticize them for their behavior. And the reason for that may be, it's a guess, that he may be referring to a specific situation. But either way, this argument, this is, this is an argument, this is a polemic against the improper use of our bodies in a sexual way, which is what they were doing. So just as he did in the last section, again, Paul wants to correct their theology, correct what they believe about God and their bodies. Friends, our sinful behavior is often so rooted in a misunderstanding about who we are in relation to God. So often, especially patterns of sin, there's a disconnect there. In our, there's a brokenness to our theology. We're missing something. So far, Paul now has argued against sexual immorality by focusing on the Christian's life purpose. We were created for Christ. And so here, he's going to get real deep here, verses 15 to 18. He's going to argue against it by focusing on the Christian's union with Christ. Look at this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them a member of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, Genesis 2.24, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do you not know, Paul says, that's one of his favorite rhetorical devices to get his point across in that particular section. Do you not know that your bodies are members, that word literally means parts of Christ? What's he saying? Well, Paul just got finished saying in verse 13 that the Christian's body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So here he elaborates on this idea by saying that the moment a person, person trusts Christ, God binds himself to that individual. Not in a physical union like a husband and a wife or a man and a prostitute, but in a spiritual union. I like how David Garland, the commentator, explains. He says, the union between believers in Christ is of an altogether different kind than that created by a sexual relationship and can be expressed only in terms of the Spirit. The consequence of Christians cleaving exclusively to Christ is that they become one spirit with Him. The Spirit creates the union with Christ and makes the body its temple. Salvation. Salvation in Jesus' name is more than just a belief, an intellectual assent for us, friends. The Lord binds himself to us. The connection that we have between us and Christ is so close, it's so intimate, not in the way you're thinking, but spiritually. 
that God actually makes our bodies the permanent dwelling place of his Holy Spirit. Now I say all of that. Why? What does that have to do with the illicit sex that Paul is talking about? Well, God has, uh, Paul's just said that God has ordained for salvation to be a spiritual union with Jesus. And he's also ordained that marriage between one man and one woman be the primary means of displaying that union to the world. If you want to take up about a year of your time in your Bible study, open up Ephesians 5 and start at verse 22 and just work yourself to the end of the chapter. If you really want to spend some time anywhere in the Bible, you'll get caught there. You'll get stuck there. Paul says there's something so profound. None of, none of us in this room really understand it. Paul says there that in a marriage that a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife and the two become one flesh and that that is a mystery that's so profound that it's actually a visible picture of the covenant that Jesus made with this church. Marriage is that between a man and a woman. John Piper says it so well, I had to quote him. In his book, This Momentary Marriage, leaving parents and holding fast to a wife, forming a new one flesh union, is meant from the beginning to display this new covenant. Christ leaving his father and taking the church as his bride at the cost of his own life and holding fast to her in a one spirit union forever. Marriage in its most basic form is a picture. It's a picture. It's a picture of our relationship as Christians with Jesus. When you're having lunch today, look around this room and look at the married couples in there, in here. They aren't perfect pictures by any means, but they're pictures of the love that God has for you in Christ. When that man loves his wife sacrificially, and that woman submits to her husband and respects him, that's a picture of our salvation. So for the Christian, sexual activity outside of where God has ordained it, which is in marriage, doesn't have to be with a prostitute, is a vile mockery. It's a vandalism of that picture. When a Christian engages in unsanctioned sexual activity, Paul says that he or she becomes one body with that person, with their partner. Whether it's a person that we're laying with, or a person on the screen, or a person in our mind. Not merely a physical connection, a spiritual connection. They become one. Genesis 2.24, that word there, become, it means it's like glued, it's like welding. One commentator says we become wedded without the wedding. And friends, Jesus said in Matthew 5 that it doesn't have to be on the level of physical intimacy for it to be adultery. We commit adultery in our hearts whenever we look out at someone with the hope and the desire and the fantasy for sexual intimacy with that person. Think about King David. Adultery was committed long before the act in David's heart. And what happens is, is in that moment, friends, when that's us, we 
give away what belongs to Christ, which is himself. And listen, in a very real way, we use Christ's body to engage in sin. Now listen, this is some very heavy stuff. Isn't it? But dear ones, we live in a culture where this kind of sex is celebrated. We live in a culture where it's an expectation that by the time you become a certain age, you ought to have explored the world of immoral sex. And teens, you are mocked if you remain virgins all the way till you're married. Friends, if we have an abortion problem in this country, and we do have an abortion problem in this country, we have an abortion problem in this country. But isn't it the case because there are so too many dads, Christian dads, who are afraid to talk 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20 with their kids because they're too uncomfortable, because they're too embarrassed? Do you know, according to statistics, seven out of ten women who have an abortion in this country identify as Christian? Seven out of ten. Dads, our embarrassment is throwing our children out into a high school and social media world where they are being told that they ought to go explore. Go have fun so long as you don't hurt anyone. And at the same time, they are killing themselves. They are draining themselves of life. They're giving Christ's body away to someone else. I am all for advocating against abortion and the fight for life. But let's start by advocating for our kids' lives first. Let's talk about these things with our kids. Let's correct the misguided theology of our kids that they're being taught every day, this wrong view about God and their relationship to him. Friends, our body matters to God. It must matter to us. It must matter to my boys. It must matter to my daughter. It must matter to us. That leads us to this last point. The Christian's body matters to God because he created it for Christ. He's joined it to Christ and because it was bought by Christ. One last time, Paul asks the question in his conclusion, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? which is in you, which is from God. So Paul's third argument for the right use of the Christian's body is its most potent one yet. It has to do with ownership. It has to do with occupation. And as first century Christians, this is going to be the one we have the most trouble with. I think by and large, we don't have any trouble with the thought that God created our bodies to bring him Glory. I think we like that. It feels good. And though we might not fully understand it, the thought that we're joined spiritually with Christ brings us great comfort when we become Christians. But in our radically individualistic culture, to hear Paul say, you do not belong to yourselves, and that you have been bought, and that you have been purchased, and that you are now owned by another... 
we have to admit in our flesh that crosses a line. To the original readers, it would have made total sense. In this first century Corinth, the, the image of the temple and ownership was, a, was, was rich with meaning for the Corinthians. Theirs was a culture where the, the temple and the auction block were common sites. Pagan temples dotted the Corinthian skyline where men and women would alike would go up and offer their bodies in idolatrous worship, which included, yes, sexual acts. Slave auction blocks occupied every city square. People would be brought up and put on display, sometimes naked, and the auction would begin, and the slave would go to the highest bidder. Immediately, that slave became the property of that buyer. What's even more interesting is it's very possible that up to half of this church that Paul's writing to was either a slave or a former slave. It was very common in his culture. And that's why that imagery is so vivid. Paul is saying that now that you are the church of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, your very body, singular, your body has undergone a transference of ownership. Since you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, you no longer give your bodies over to idolatrous worship and the defiled pagan temples because the true God has taken up residence in your body. It's his home now. I don't intend to step on toes. I really don't. But I really want you to see this. This whole modern slogan of my body, my choice is totally contradictory to a Christian anthropology. It's totally against this idea that the core essence of, of who we are is God's. This core idea that God restores our humanity to Christ and for Christ. You've heard that slogan, haven't you? It's a, it's a feminist slogan that says, I have the right to do whatever I want with my body and no outside force can impose upon me its rules and regulations. And without getting into all the nuances of it, I understand that's a good thing. We don't want, I don't want anybody getting near my daughter or my wife. That's a good thing. But the premise behind the idea is such an influence to us. Paul would say to this, if that's your mantra, you're missing the point entirely. You are shooting far too low in your estimation of your essential being. Don't you understand? Christ came to earth not just to redeem your soul. You're not going to be floating out there in heaven with a harp someday as a, an ethereal ghostly wisp. He came to redeem all of you, your whole body, and God owns it for his glory so you don't have the right to do whatever you want with your own body. Goes right against us, doesn't it? Flies right in our face. And yet Paul here says it. Paul wants us to deal with it. Paul wants us to deal with this mindset he wants us to have a shift in our attitude. He wants us to know that our thoughts and our actions and our words 
all have to do with Christ now. They are his. Friends, I trust you'll understand the significance of verse 14, which I skipped over. Let me look at that with you. It says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. At this point, if, if anyone struggles to see the great value, the significance of the Christian's body to the Lord, behold the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus didn't emerge from the tomb as a, a ghost. He came out with a glorified body that could be touched, could be felt, could be clung to. He had a mouth and a digestive system that could eat food. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is proof that the human body counts. It matters. Our bodies in its present form is the raw material that God will use by his power to transform our lowly bodies and make us Christ's glorious body. Our bodies, friends, are stamped for resurrection. Unlike the animals. I have a goldfish in my kitchen. It's the least, most boring thing I've said so far. Can't believe I just did that. I have a goldfish in my kitchen. His name is Bubbles, Goldie, I can, Bubbles. Every time I walk by that poor goldfish, he or she, it goes nuts. Because all it wants me to do is pick up the lid and put some food in there so it can eat. When I feed him, he's happy, happy as a clam, since we're on the seafood, happy, and I can walk away. That goldfish lives only for the pleasure of its next meal. Apart from Christ, we can only live for the pleasure of what comes next. But once we belong to him, Everything we do in this life permeates with meaning, overflows with meaning, with meaning. Why? Because our bodies belong to the Lord. Friends, this means we don't need to give in to the ancient paganistic view on the one side of body-hating asceticism and where we mistreat the body because the soul is all that matters. But it also means we don't have to come over here on the other extreme to body-worshiping indulgence and satisfy every appetite that we have. It means that we can use our retinas and our taste buds and our fingertips to enjoy what Lewis says, the beauties of nature, without living for them and without making them ultimate. It means we can do what verse 18 commands, flee sexual immorality. Now, I want to speak a word of this, about this, and then we'll close, and I'll pray, and then we'll eat. In the original there, in that verse, verse 18, where he says flee, that word is in what's called the present imperative. That's a Greek construct of a verb which indicates an ongoing activity. Paul is saying there, not flee, and then you're done. He says flee and keep on fleeing and keep on running from sexual immorality. The readers would have immediately picked that up. We miss it. We say, oh, now I got to flee. No, constantly, 24-7, flee sexual immorality. Why? Because God's a big killjoy and he doesn't want us to have any fun? 
Because God doesn't care about our pleasure at all? No. Christians are to keep on fleeing sexual sin because no other sin is so directed against our own body as porneia because it involves the whole person. It makes us slaves of a master that does not have rightful ownership over our bodies. So friends, do we run? Do we flee sexual immorality? Or how do we flee? And keep on fleeing. In a word, we avoid temptation with a warlike intentionality. Jesus intended for this fleeing to be as serious as war. In Matthew 5, when he said, if your eye or your hand causes you to sin, gouge it out or cut, cut, gouge it, out or cut it off. It would be better if you went to hell with heaven with both of your, one part of your body, I'm messing this up, or to hell with your whole body intact. So how can we be intentionally warlike with sexual temptation, but with any temptation? I'm going to give a few suggestions to you, and then we will pray. Number one, plan ahead before you enter your destination. What in the world does that mean? Well, every day we go to a workplace, we go to a grocery store, we go out in public, we go to someone's house, we go to the beach. We go into rooms, we go into bedrooms, we go into bathrooms. We're constantly on the move. Yes? Say yes, everybody. Yes? Okay. That is the place, don't care where it is, where temptation is going to be hanging out. Temptation will hang out wherever you are. That's why we must be prayed up and scriptured up before we go anywhere. You say, before I go to work? Yeah, before you go to work. Do you see anybody at work? Do you use a computer at work? Yes, before you go to work. That may mean you need to use a lifeline. It may, need to, may mean you need to phone a friend. It may mean you need to have a text message prepared and ready to go. There's a group of friends that I have. We text one another before we go to the beach every time. Hey, buddy, I'm going to the beach. You know what it's like there. Please pray for me. Please help me. And the whole time we're re rehearsing scripture. And if you want to memorize a good scripture, may I suggest 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Ask yourself that question. Rehearse that scripture the whole time. Plan ahead before you enter that destination. Number two, if you struggle with self-control, don't be alone where temptation triggers always are. Don't be alone with temptation triggers. Friends, if we can't be in a room with a phone or a computer or a tablet without pulling up and looking at suggestive images. Oh, and the thumbnails on the news, those are suggestive images. So don't lie to yourself and say that I'm only looking at the news. If we can't go there without doing that, we need to get a, a block like covenant eyes, or better yet, don't close the door so that only you and the, the device are in the room. Guys, keep the phone out of the bathroom. I know you want to watch reels when you're sitting there. Keep the phone out of the bathroom. 
That is the place where temptation will come at you when you're not ready. And guess what? You are not ready. These are triggers, and these triggers are attached to a gun that's aimed at your soul, and you need to fight against these with warlike intentionality. Number three, if you're married, if you are married, give your spouse free access to your devices. Uh-oh, I stepped on some toes there. Husbands, let your wife read your texts. Ladies, let your husband read your text. I know sometimes we have to text members of the opposite sex for work and different reasons. If possible, make it a group text and always, always, always listen to this. Don't ever talk about personal things with a member of the opposite sex by text message. How are you is fine. Let it die there. I'll pray for you now. Do not give your heart an inroad. It wants too much. It's too hungry. It will not stop. Emotional affairs begin long before physical affairs. And then let your spouse read your texts. Let your spouse read your browsing history. Three practical. Number four, finally. If you're caught in a pattern of sin today, rediscover the beauty of the gospel. In the 19th century, Thomas Chalmers, the Scottish pastor, called it the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. Friends, if if we give our bodies over to sexual sin or overeating or overdrinking, may I submit to us in that moment that we are looking for a satisfaction that only Jesus can give you. I've told you before from this pulpit that I struggled with sexual sin for many years. Man, that's humbling to say out loud. Well into my 20s, into my marriage, it was a huge problem, huge problem. I want to tell you that I gained victory over it, not by putting covenant eyes on my phone, not by having accountability partners, not by rehearsing scripture before I went somewhere, although all those things are very good. By the grace of God, he gave me the power to overcome sexual sin by making Jesus more beautiful to me. If you're caught in a web of sexual sin, it's because Jesus is not beautiful. I want to tell you, he is beautiful. And he has every resource and grace within himself alone to cause you to overcome, to help you overcome. Bathe yourself in the scripture that talks about what Jesus did for you. Fill your eyes and hearts with good books. If you don't have time to read a book, get an Audible subscription and listen to good books. Discover that no one can love Christ like Christ, not love you like Christ. No one has the power, the ability, no resource, no bit of pleasure has the ability to satisfy you like the Savior does. Guess what? 
you can't love yourself enough. But Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than for one to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus bought our whole selves, not with money, not by bartering, but at the cost of his life, Christ purchased us for God so that our lives would be to the praise of his glory. Friends, what kind of love is this? What kind of hope is this? Will you come to him today and find forgiveness? There is not one sin that you've committed that he is unable to forgive and to give you the power over. Love so amazing. Love so divine. What is this love? That it demands my soul, my life, my all. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, yes, this is heavy, but oh, Lord, we want to know what you're saying to us today. Oh, Lord, we want to be changed. We want to be transformed by this text from one degree of glory to the next. We don't want to give in, cave in, and be triggered and shot and killed by sexual temptation or any other temptation that leads us away from glorying in our Savior. So, Lord, sever the root by giving us an expulsive power of a new affection that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for my brother, my sister, or my friend, maybe my friend that has never come to trust Christ today. Lord, I pray for that man. I pray for that woman, that right here, right now, that they would see in this sermon on sex that there is a word to them from the living God who invites them to come and to turn away from their lifestyle and to trust in you and to receive glory and joy forever in him. There's a permanent dwelling place in you, sir, in you, ma'am, that is meant for the Lord Jesus. And today he calls on you to trust in his name, to believe in his sacrifice, and to follow him. Do this, Holy Spirit. We cannot change us, I pray, for your son's sake and his glory. Amen.